Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. Each week, we take you inside the biggest local and state stories of the last seven days. Stories like these. Illinois is losing one seat in Congress as well. House Democrats moving ahead with a new set of maps, a redo of what they did in May based on updated census data. Were it not for the Latino population, Illinois' population would have dipped even more. Clock is ticking on a clean energy deal that's halfway to the finish line in Springfield. Thousands of jobs were on the line if lawmakers can't agree on a way to bail out two nuclear plants while still meeting the governor's climate change goals. Joining me for those stories and more, Hannah Meisel, Illinois government and politics editor for NPR Illinois. Welcome, Hannah. Thanks for having me. And Chris Jones is with us, editorial page editor and theater critic for the Chicago Tribune. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. We're going to start with Springfield, where state politicians gathered late into the night on Tuesday during a one-day special session. Hannah, I want to start with that redrawn legislative map that passed the House. What do we need to know? That's right. So every 10 years, uh, lawmakers are required to update the legislative maps to reflect new census data. But uh, this year, of course, because of the pandemic, that census data was delayed. And so what we would usually get in the spring didn't come until mid-August. Now, Democrats could have waited, but that would mean that they would most likely, uh, you know, risk losing their political advantage and giving Republicans a 50-50 shot percent shot at uh, giving, uh, you know, controlling the map making process. They didn't want to do that. So they passed maps in the spring, knowing that they would have to update them uh, when the census data came out, which showed that, yes, actually, uh, census numbers were pretty different from what uh, was expected. They redid the maps, but, um, you know, there's a specter of lawsuits from especially uh, minority groups, especially Latino groups uh, who say that, the maps are going to dilute their political power. And uh, there is a very real chance that, um, you know, that federal judges will have to kind of decide the maps, uh, you know, and that was even before the uh, Democrats pushed through these new maps. And so it's going to be really interesting to see. They they thought that they were safe uh, with passing these new maps, but, uh, you know, it's going to be a really fall. Chris, were you in any way surprised to see the map approved along party lines? Uh, no, not in, in no way surprised. I mean, the Tribune editorial board has long said that these decisions should be made by apolitical independent entities, not essentially by political parties. You know, it, it's not ideal for the boundaries of those districts, really, to really be about ensuring democratic control of the General Assembly for as long as possible. When you think about it, um, representing people really should be the, the, the should be first and foremost not partisan concerns. And of course, the Republicans are no better at this. If you know, there's an argument that they Democrats would say they're worse. But it it just leads us into this world of sort of partisan, sort of cynical decision making that doesn't really serve the people. So, not surprising, but still not a really good way of doing business. I'd say. Hannah, besides opposition from Republicans, the MAC continues to face lawsuits from Latino groups. What are they hoping to gain? 
Well, they're hoping to uh, get their maps redrawn. You know, we see, we've we seen, you know, it's been really interesting to see because Democrats, of course, uh, one of their core, their core constituencies is, is you know, they're ha- they have a multi-ethnic, multi-racial kind of base in their party, uh, whereas Republicans over the last few decades have just gotten a, a smaller party, a party that is mostly uh, white. And so Democrats say, well, we're looking out and we want to make the maps that reflect the diversity of our state. But uh, I guess ironically, mm-hmm. the maps that uh, these new revised maps would actually take away districts that are majority Latino. And so that's their argument that, hey, we we've grown in the census. And you said that you wanted maps that reflect that growth. And yet this is what we get. And so they want a federal judge to step in and say, hey, this is not this. This clearly is unconstitutional. We need a redraw. Just before 1 a.m. on Wednesday, the Illinois Senate passed an energy overhaul. Did you get any sleep this week, Hannah? I, I hear your late night also involved some teeth grinding. <laughs> oh, that is right. Uh, I, I saw your tweet yesterday. And uh, maybe you should consider a less stressful life. And I said, oh, interesting, interesting. But no, um, <laughs> Senate Democrats, they passed this long-awaited energy and climate bill over to the House. But it, it, it the, the argument is far from over. Of course, we have long, you know, the governor has long wanted to do this big climate push to eliminate uh carbonization, you know, eliminate carbon fuel to, you know, kind of make Illinois a leader in fighting climate change. But that means the loss of jobs. That means the loss then of tax revenue. It is a much more complicated fight. And all summer, uh, environmental groups have been at loggerheads with organized labor, and they have not been able to work out some sort of deal uh, over, you know, when Coal and natural gas-fired power plants in Illinois will have to uh, shut down ultimately, and a decarbonization schedule before that. But it's we're really running down to the wire because this last sticking point it was never uh, expected to be the thing that's held up the entire deal because um, you know it was expected that Exelon, which the big nuclear giant, would uh, hold up the deal. But ultimately, mm-hmm. uh, because they they want to close down their unprofitable plants. And uh, they, we're running into a deadline in just a matter of 10 days here that they will close their plant in Byron near Rockford. And that ultimately will undermine clean energy goals because that creates a lot of energy production in Illinois. And then we'd have to import dirtier energy. Yeah, Chris, let's piggyback off where uh, Hannah just left off. As uh, she mentioned, ComEd's parent company, Exelon, is threatening to shut down a nuclear plan if their bailout isn't approved. Chris, do you think lawmakers are feeling the pressure? Yeah, I, you know, I think I think nuclear issues are sort of interesting because uh, we actually ran an op-ed this week that was co-signed by members of the Republican state legislature and also the labor the labor unions that obviously have an interest because they represent power plant workers. So in some ways, that was an unusual alliance. You don't normally see Labor getting into bed with the uh, the, the state Republicans quite like that. So, I, you know, and that's because really one, one side argues that nuclear energy is should be part of the future of the uh, clean energy in the state, and the other side says not. 
in essence, uh, you know, and, and I think that the um, the Exelon really, you know, it said it's going to shut down its uh, the Byron plant. I think it is in September mm-hmm. if it doesn't get more assistance from Springfield. So, you know, it, it's it's an arguable it's an arguable point, and I think it it sort of cuts away from the usual political um, sort of lines in the sand, you might say. Hannah, why did the House reject the ethics bill? Right. So um, in the spring, there's there's a big push in the last several years to do a big ethics overhaul in Illinois. Obviously, political corruption, uh, Springfield, those terms uh, jump to mind when you think about uh, how state politics is run. Um, And. Ultimately, on the last day of session, uh, ethics bill was pushed through. Republicans weren't happy about it, but it's hard to vote against an ethics bill because you don't want that uh, opposition research coming back to haunt you in a campaign. <laughs> ultimately, um, you know, they said it was weak, and you know, it frankly it is. But um, you know, the governor uh, did a narrow, what's called an amendatory veto. He wanted to change something about how the legislative inspector general, uh, you know, can do her job. Of course, that person had kind of quit over the summer because of this uh, very weak ethics bill that was passed. Uh, Republicans then decided they're going to use their leverage and pull support off the bill. And a bunch of Democrats had already gone home for the night, knowing that there wasn't going to be much more action. And so ultimately, the bill failed, which is really interesting to see. Uh, It'll likely be brought back for another vote and probably passed, but a very interesting move by Republicans. Let's turn from state news to Chicago. As the summer's winding down, Chicago is on track to have its highest annual murder tally in a quarter century. Chris, how damaging do you think that this grim statistic is for the city's reputation and, and just for the quality of life of the people who live here? Well, it, it's it's horrific. You know, it's funny because as I was thinking about this interview a few minutes ago, I was thinking, you know, here you are, you, you, you sort of talk on a radio show about 524 murders, and that's through, I think, last uh, last week, 524. Mm-hmm. And we sort of accept that as uh, sort of standard almost in the city. I mean, it's up. It's up 3% from 2020, but it wasn't great in 2020 either. Um, and it's it's a sort of a situation that you ha- everyone says is unacceptable, but very little seems to change. In fact, as we've just as you just pointed out, it's actually gotten worse by three percent from last year. And if you um, you know, so if you extrapolate that out to the full year, then essentially you're looking at 800. Uh, I think approximately, uh, based on where we are in the year, 800 Chicagoans losing their lives to a murderer. I mean, it's a sort of stunning total in many ways. And it, it would be higher than anything in the, since the mid-1990s when, of course, there was a, you know, there was a, a, a big crime wave going on fueled, a lot of people would say, fueled by crack cocaine. So that's not exactly mm-hmm. a great, it's just not a great statistic in any way. And everyone, of course, has a variety of opinions on why this is. And there's a lot of, obviously, different people with different views on what can be done about it. But I think the beginning of it has to be some sort of sense that this is an unacceptably high level and is clearly going in the wrong direction. Chris, I got to talk about the three Chicago cops that were arrested this week for excessive force. Walk us through these cases real quick. 
Well, so th this was the situation. The one that probably got the most attention was a woman uh, who was walking her dog on the lakefront, uh, and she was doing so after the lakefront um, had closed. So th that was the situation. But then there was an encounter with a police officer whereby um, her phone her phone was taken. Uh, there was video made of, let's, I think reasonable people could agree, of a very unpleasant altercation. And if you really look at what was going on, the person was, after all, just walking a dog. So I think that was indicative, really, of, of this sort of terrible sort of scenario where you've got the drip, 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 especially for people of color, of, of, of what appear to be minor incidents or seem on the face to be minor incidents, but they really contribute to this general lack of trust that goes on, especially between Chicagoans of color and the police department. And I think, I think that is a real problem. And then, then that was not the only one. As you point out, there was a situation where a police lieutenant uh, allegedly shoved a flashlight between the buttocks of a, of a, of a teenager um, wow. a 17-year-old suspect of a carjacking, I think. And mm -hmm. the two sides of that were, you know, on one hand, the, the police officer's lawyer basically said this is equivalent to a spanking or something like that, I'm paraphrasing, and that's sort of a, you know, that's the way to stop carjackings kind of thing. He said, that, he said other, that's what you it, get for carjacking. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, but of course, these encounters are... are very damaging, I think, in the, the and, and they, you shouldn't be sort of um, misled by the apparent minor nature of them. In some ways, they're more indicative of a problem than the big ones that we that really get the most attention. Got about a minute here, Chris. Sticking with you, I wanted to get your take on uh, another Tribune editorial that ran this week, and it involves lawsuits that the city filed against DoorDash and Grubhub. Yeah. Well, that's a really interesting one, and DoorDash and Grubhub were not pleased with that editorial. I would point out, as you might expect, but it, it came out of uh, it came out of the, the city of Chicago's decision to sue uh, those those uh, those sites, partly because they had uh, they created essentially shadow menus. They alleged of, uh, and they also created sort of phone numbers that helped them get commission from orders, even though the customer didn't necessarily know that. And I think in the in the end of the day. They said, of course, look, we're doing business. We've done our best to help these restaurants. So it was, it's, a, it's an ongoing legal situation, but the restaurant community is sort of up in arms in Chicago against these services, even though they're very, very popular. And they, of course, say we're just doing business and we're trying to help the restaurants in a pandemic. That's Chris Jones, editorial page editor and theater critic for the Chicago Tribune. Also with us for our weekly news recap is Hannah Meisel, Illinois government and politics editor for NPR Illinois. We still have plenty of news to talk about, including stories like these. As of today, all states in the United States are now on the travel advisory except Vermont. These pictures taken inside some Chicago high schools are circulating on social media with posts raising concerns about overcrowded hallways, packed lunchrooms and air conditioning problems. Well, if you are headed to the United Center anytime soon, you're going to need your vaccination card or a negative COVID-19 test. COVID-19 has claimed Chicago's Pride Parade yet again. Organizers on Wednesday announced the Boys Town celebration has been canceled for a second straight year as the city weathers its latest coronavirus surge. Let's start with the latest on COVID-19 cases. Wednesday, Illinois recorded more than 5,000 new cases. That's the highest one-day number since January. 
Hannah, Southern Illinois is being hit particularly hard. What's going on there? That's right. And I just looked at the very latest uh, COVID numbers that came out, and we've actually reached a new high uh, lately, 5,980. Nearly 6,000 new COVID cases. Now, this is, we've also been doing a lot more testing, so it's really the positivity rate that matters. But it's still pretty shocking to see, uh, you know, the progress that we've made kind of erased by this Delta variant, which, of course, is spreading especially among the unvaccinated. Um, it's, it's pretty devastating. But, yeah, we've, we've definitely seen a lot of, uh, you know, new COVID cases and new hospitalizations, especially, and new deaths, unfortunately. But hospitalizations I want to touch on because the Tribune had a piece this week um, about southern Illinois, the 20-county region where uh, there were almost no ICU beds left and uh you know that's pretty devastating because that that doesn't just mean that you can't be treated for covid it means that if you come in for example with a heart attack you know you might be turned away or you might have delayed care and uh that means that you might not have as good of an outcome as if you could have and so it's it's really it's been very wild to watch um yeah you know, I just looked at the. It, it, there was a, a point last week where I, Southern Illinois only had one ICU bed available. It looks like it's a back up to uh, about 29. But you know that the state had offered a lot of support in saying like we're yeah. we can get you some more workers. Uh, healthcare workers definitely been a, a, a huge issue. And, and Hannah, the CDC also came out with their report on a Central Illinois church camp and conference that was. In, held in June, and it became a super spreader. What happened there? That's right. There was a church camp in June in Western Illinois where uh, the majority of folks were unvaccinated. Masks were not required um, inside. And it turns out that after the CDC kind of case study, 180 people became infected uh, after the church camp and a related conference that was, I guess, uh, you know, later that week. 180 and, uh, people. 180 people, and it was mostly spread to folks in their households. Um, but, you know, it, 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 this is just more evidence that it, if you don't get vaccinated, then you are you are part of the, you know, the spreading population. That doesn't mean that unvaccinated don't spread it. I think the science, uh, you know, shows that actually what we thought was true, that, you know, if you're vaccinated, you're totally fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, is not necessarily true, but it still matters. I mean, in this in this CD uh, state study, uh, 29 vaccinated people did get breakthrough infections, but none of them were hospitalized. Also, sounds like very few masks, if any. Very few masks, right? Uh, it was not recommended. It was, you know, people were not uh, really wearing masks at all in this the the camp or the related conference and. You know, of course, and this is also, I should point out, before Delta was even, um, you know, the big problem that it is now. This was, you know, months ago now. And imagine it was now. Wow. Well, they may not have required masks at the camp, but Chicago is cracking down on businesses that don't enforce indoor mask mandates. Chris, the city is also issuing citations, right? Right. I mean, essentially, the city has figured out, I think, that they that there's no point in an indoor mask mandate that you're not enforcing, uh, because otherwise people sort of thumb their noses at it, and there is no indoor mask mandate in any practical sense. 
And you know, it's interesting because that's actually contrasted with the travel advisory that there's been these Chicago travel advisories, but those have never been enforced. And I think everybody knows listening to this broadcast that everybody violates that, or almost everybody. And, and you can argue that sometimes the travel advisory hasn't been very logical because, for example, you know, what Hannah was just talking about in southern Illinois, um, you can end up with sort of communities that are, are, you know, outside of this state can actually be better and yet still on a travel advisory in this state. Mm. So I, I think in the, in the end, at the end of the day, you have to have, a, you have, to have some sort of enforcement. Otherwise, the, the, the law doesn't make any sense. And so we're beginning to see that Chicago is moving in on actually saying, if you don't enforce this, then, then you're in trouble. And the other good thing about that, to my mind, is then you stop deputizing private citizens from doing the city's job. So instead of the poor host at a, at a, at a restaurant essentially being forced to enforce it, you know, it, the, the, the city should be behind it. It's the city's law, and enforcement is, the part, is part of every good law has to have enforcement. It's as simple as that. Is this like getting a ticket, Chris? Well, I, th- <laughs> I think in many cases it's initially getting a warning. Okay. Uh, so they're not paying anything. Notices to correct in the city parlance. Okay. To you and me, that's basically a warning. But I think, in, and they've said that in the case of Scott laws, then then they'll then you know it'll become fines probably and maybe even more draconian penalties than that. Hannah, let's remind listeners what this new travel advisory that was just mentioned, what that actually means, because it was updated this week and it now includes every state except Vermont. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, the city has been issuing these travel advisories for God, more than a year now. But, you know, I don't think that most people who are coming into the city uh, are following it or, you know, there are certainly some folks who are voluntarily Uh, doing a 10-day or two-week quarantine after coming back. But the vast majority of people, it's just an advisory and, you know, there's no consequences attached. Chris, do you have concerns about how this could impact our tourism industry? I don't think the, I don't think anyone has taken the travel advisory seriously. I, honestly, I, I mean, with, a, with very rare exceptions. So I don't think it is really going to impact things. I mean... It, 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 it's a sort of a bizarre. It's a sort of a bizarre situation, and we all know now that all of the COVID nineteen sort of mandates and recommendations and advisories are sometimes contradictory and illogical. And, and I, I, I sort of think this one is, in many ways, I much prefer what we were just talking about, which is the the idea of enforcing an ex- a mandate. Mm-hmm. I think that sort of recommending people come from everywhere but Vermont sort of quarantine is just not, it's not going to happen. Anyone who's been at O'Hare Airport has seen the full planes and people mm-hmm. coming from all over the country. And I don't, I just don't think that that's really going to have much impact on the city. I mean, this is a city that held Lollapalooza, for goodness sake. So, yeah, right. You know, I, mean, I mean, it's just, it's not a consistent, that for me is not a very helpful or consistent thing. And in some ways, it undermines things like the mask mandate because people go, well, it sort of encourages Scots laws in some ways. And I, so I don't, I don't think the travel advisory, when we look back at all of this, will be something where we go, that was a good thing. The only benefit of it that I really see is the idea that it gets people to think about it. So mm-hmm. you could come from another state, you do think, what's the rate there? Do I need to, you know, get tested? Do I need to go quarantine? So it has a sort of public information uh, function, I suppose. But in general, 
without heat, it doesn't really mean very much. Yeah, I haven't heard a soul but us journalists talk about the travel advisory, so... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so there's your clue. Well Vermont, right? Vermont. <laughs> Everybody except Vermont. Uh, boy, <laughs> I want to stick with COVID for a bit longer. Um, Hannah, this week, organizers of the Gay Pride Parade canceled the event second year in a row. Were they right? I mean, it's hard to say. It's an outdoor event, and... Um, you know, that is obviously something that we seem to be safe, is safe. But also, you know, we know about these events. And I think this is the reason that was given for, um, you know, a couple other events that were canceled uh, is that these things tend to move inside, into bars, into people's houses to continue the party later. Um, you know, it, it's kind of inter- <laughs> a little ironic because Pride is usually in late June, and it turns out, uh, you know, the, the event was pushed until early October, so the you know, attendance could be up. But it turns out uh, late June would have been the safest time to hold it because that was about the time that uh, Chicago's, Illinois' COVID numbers were the lowest. Ah. Uh, Chris, uh, Labor Day normally means that summer's winding down, and, and for some it also signals the start of the indoor theater season and the Tribune right. You had an editorial this week that was welcoming the new musical director of the Lyric Opera. So how confident are you that performing arts groups are, are going to be able to rebound this season? Uh, that's, that's, <laughs> that sounds like a simple question, but it's a very, very difficult one to answer. How confident am I? Somewhat confident. I, I, I am fully confident if we have a long time frame. And by long time frame, I mean 2022 or maybe even longer. I think the fall, that we're looking at the fall art season as being maybe 20% of its usual size this fall is what I would say, Mm -hmm. in terms of the number of things that are out there. Um, We've seen a trickle of cancellations, but probably in the Gay Pride Parade is notable for that because there was an outside event that got canceled. And of course, different organizations are gonna make different decisions. But it, again, there's bizarre inconsistencies. I, I live in Wrigleyville. There was a Maroon 5 concert Monday night going on with tens of thousands of people mm. coming in and out of Wrigley Field. It's hard for me to see, say, well, that was safe and a gay pride parade would not have been. But the reality, of course, is that they're organized by different people. So different people are making different choices. And that's been a feature of this entire COVID-19 crisis, you might say. But I think for the performing arts, it's been especially difficult. I mean... The guy, Enrique Mazzola, who's coming to the Lyric, is a fabulously uh, exuberant personality. I have huge hopes for him. I think he's going to be one of the major artistic leaders in this city. But he, but he's still, you know, he's been here for a little while, and he's been sort of sitting around waiting for a chance to do his thing. Yeah. And I think it's just going to take a while. And it's, I don't think we know, actually, whether the fall will work as we hope it will. We just don't know. It's, if you look yeah. at the statistics that Hannah was just quoting... It's not a done deal. It's mm-hmm. just not. We wish it were, but it's not. The numbers are definitely going in the wrong direction. Thanks, yeah. Hannah, for that uh, for that news. Uh, <laughs> yeah. an- another indoor venue trying to welcome people back, that's the United Center. Um, they're requiring proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test to be able to attend uh, yeah. events like you know Blackhawks and Bulls games. Is this the new normal then, Chris? It sounds like you're saying it's, it is. Well, you know, I generally think it's an interesting dilemma about how much should vaccines be required. It's a very complex ethical dilemma. I think most reasonable people would say that a private organization can require them and should require them if it wants to. 
whether or not the government should mandate or force you to put a needle in your arm, I think is, is a complicated issue. And I think I see the arguments on both sides for that, frankly. But it's quite clear that things like the Bulls and the Blackhawks, there we have an indoor event. If we're wearing a mask of jewel, we should darn well be wearing one when we go to a Bulls game because yeah. we're in the same kind of crowds. There's no reason to have a mask mandate at the supermarket and not have one of the Bulls. That would make absolutely no sense whatsoever. I want to quickly turn to schools before we run out of time. Late yesterday, CPS told parents that if their unvaccinated kids travel out of state over the holiday weekend, they should stay out of school for seven days. Hannah, do you think parents are going to follow the guidance? No, I mean, again, this is not just like uh, the citywide travel advisory. We're about, <laughs> right. You know, there are to follow it because, you know, that means that you interrupt your life. If you don't have child care, if you don't have adequate support, then, you know, what incentives do you have to uh, follow that? Parents will not be following it, and the cars are already gassed up, and they're already on their way out of state. Um, Chicago teachers are also concerned about COVID protocols in schools, though. Uh, The union said members will resort to escalating actions if necessary to promote safety. Chris, what's that? Well, that's that's the idea. I mean, escalating actions really means things on the way to a strike, Um, and, and and I think that that's that puts fear in the heart of any of any parent who is a kid in the Chicago public schools because I don't need to reiterate just how much school has been lost through a variety of factors, previous strike, COVID-19, of course, and I don't think anybody wants or, or really could even, if that's just so awful for parents and children as to be unthinkable to my mind or unspeakable almost. But the union does, I think, have a right to say there has to be a good testing protocol in place. And if you look at that, I'm not sure that it is. And I think they're right to put pressure on CPS to ensure safety in schools. Well, that's it for the recap. My guests were Chris Jones, editorial page editor and theater critic of the Chicago Tribune, and Hannah Meisel, Illinois government and politics editor of NPR Illinois. Thank you both and have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us for the weekly news recap. To really understand the stories behind the headlines, make sure you hit the subscribe button and take a few seconds to give us a rating and review. It really helps other people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening and have a great long weekend. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.